This conversation was originally presented as part of the BioLynx Alliance Greater and Squirrel Glider Symposium. The expert panel for the Squirrel Glider Survey Design and Monitoring Workshop includes Dylan McWinney from DM Ecological and Albury Conservation Company, Dr. Rodney Van Der Rie from the University of Melbourne and WSP Australia, Associate Professor Ross Goldingay from Southern Cross University, and Jerry Alexander from the Department of Environment, Land, Water and Planning, Victoria. The session was facilitated by Stuart Cow from Conservation Management Pty Ltd. Um, welcome everybody to the um, uh, Squirrel Glider workshop on survey design and monitoring. Um, really terrific to have you all here. My name's Stuart Cow. I'm the facilitator for the session, which largely will involve me asking a few questions and then getting out of the way while people who know a lot more can, can answer those questions. Um, we're just going to start firstly with an acknowledgement of, um, of country. So just to say that BioLynx Alliance is proud to acknowledge the traditional owners of the places where we live and work, wherever they are uh, around the nation. We recognise and respect the enduring relationship that those people have with their lands and water and we pay respect to elders past present and future um, as i say today we this session is about survey design and monitoring we've got uh, two others later on this afternoon on other on other topics um, and the broad context of this session is um, set out by thinking about this question or this point, that understanding population trends relies on long-term monitoring and confident assumptions about detectability and accurate and reliable species identification. Um, established survey techniques and emerging technologies are improving squirrel glider detectability. And these promise to increase the number of records in atlases and improve our overall understanding of population dynamics. What we want to talk about today is one of the key elements of improving our understanding of squirrel glider distribution, their abundance and conservation status. Uh, we're really fortunate today um, that the discussion is going to be guided by uh, five leading practitioners, researchers and policymakers. All um, uh, thinkers in this on this topic of survey design and monitoring, um, in no particular order other than the one that's on my my sheet here, um, we've got um, Associate Professor Ross Goldingay from Southern Cross University, um, who uh, there we go. You can, oh, he's up in my top left corner. I've no idea where he is on your screen. Um, uh, um, Dr. Rodney Vandery from the University of Melbourne and um, WSP Australia. Uh, Dylan McWinney from DM Ecological and um, the Albury Conservation Company. Jerry Alexander from the um, Department of Environment, Land, Water and Planning, or um, DOP, I think is how they're, how they're talked about. So that's who we, we joined with, um, joined by today. Um, the sessions are really quite short and focused, as, as everybody would know. Um, we're aiming to share some ideas from the panel with you, the folks who are also on the, on the line, but we also want to take questions from you. So 
what I'm going to do is I'm going to lead out with a question to each uh, panelist um, to sort of give and give them a chance to provide some guidance and some thoughts. And um, if we're lucky, kick off a bit of a, uh, an argument amongst the other panelists who might uh, wish to comment, agree, contradict, or expand on that. And then we want to look for additional questions from everybody else who's on the line. So, um, and after given the number of folks we've got and the amount of time, sort of seven or so minutes, I'll then move to a second question and direct that at another um, one of our team and they'll kick us off in whatever direction they would like to like to go. Um, because there's so many on the on the Zoom call, um, as, as you know, we've asked you to kind of turn off your screens and, and so on, so we can't see or hear you. Um, but we're really keen that um, if you've got questions that you post them up in the chat. So hopefully you, you're um, across how to use the chat function in your, in your Zoom. Um, for most people on the bottom of your screen, there'll be a little chat bubble. So please pop questions up into the chat. And as we go along, um, we'll, we'll pull some of those out and also direct them to the, direct them to the team. Um, at the end of the session, um, um, well, uh, the group have already posted up into the chat a, um, a survey. So at the end of the session um, or during, if, you, if you'd like, please fill out that survey. Um, just ask you a couple of, couple of questions. So I'm going to kick off. Um, and my first question I'm going to direct to, to um, uh, Rod. Um, and leading out with the sort of the, the, the big question and then a follow-up, which is so why, why do we need to monitor and are there accepting pro, are there accepted protocols you now for squirrel glider um, within that within the context of why we need to do this? Thanks, um, Stuart. It's it's great to be here again to, to chat about this sort of stuff. And the so so the question: Why do we need to monitor and, yeah. and are, are there accepted monitoring protocols? protocols. Yep. Yeah. Um, so look, the, the first question is: Why do we need to monitor? I think absolutely the the most important question to start this whole discussion with because i've worked in local government a bit and um i've worked with state government a bit on projects and often we get the the request or the demand is you need to monitor the response of a population sometimes it's squirrel glider sometimes it's other species to this particular um proposal or development and my favourite paper published in the scientific literature is entitled something like most ecological monitoring is a complete waste of time and money. And that's often because let's say we're trying to figure out the, the, the impact of a certain development on a population. You know, we might study that population, but if that, if, if the only thing we study is that population, but we don't study another population nearby that's not impacted by the development, and if the population goes up or down, we have no way of knowing if it's because of the development or if it's just some random variation or fluctuation in the in the environment that, that we're not actually capturing. So, so I think it's really important to ask, do we really need to monitor? Sometimes it's, let's say we put up additional hollows and we all know that if you add hollows to a landscape, that's going to be of benefit to squirrel gliders. So do we really need to monitor that? I'm not suggesting we don't do monitoring because there's lots of situations when we do need to do it, but I'm just saying we need to really ask carefully, should we spend money on monitoring or would we be better off spending that money 
doing more good stuff, more habitat restoration than actual monitoring. We can go into that for, in a lot of detail if you like. And in terms of protocols, it, it really depends. If, if the question that we need, that we're asking about, about the monitoring is, is the population size going up or down, then the things that we need to measure is the number of animals in the population. If the, the question is around, do squirrel gliders occur here? Then what we need to measure is the presence of squirrel gliders in the landscape. Not necessarily how many, but rather just are they here? And then depending on what your question is and what you need to measure, you know, a standard way might be um, doing spotlighting and you can get an index of, of gliders like we saw three animals per kilometre of spotlighting transect or we can capture animals out of nest boxes and we can count them. Um, and if it's just presence absence, well, maybe we can just do it with cameras and, and pick up squirrel gliders and say, yep, they occur in this, this particular patch of habitat. Um, that's, that's a good thing. So look, there's lots there. I'll, I'll, maybe I'll leave it there for now, Stuart, but happy to go back to some of those sort of detail. No, great, thanks. We get thanks, Rod. So if I, my, my quick summary, that would be you saying the answer to both of those is it's purpose-driven. Correct, that's, absolutely. That's the essential point. Um, Ed, Ross, Dylan, Jerry, any comments on that? Yeah, I can go if you like for a minute yep. here. Um, sure. Yeah, I agree that there is a real risk with a lot of monitoring that it's just monitoring for the sake of monitoring and it's not driven by a question being asked or it's not leading towards a, a predicted outcome or, or trying to inform any management interventions. And a lot of the time monitoring programs are set up with good intentions because we all think it's good to monitor. But if we're not doing those things, then what's the point? And that is Rod said, a waste of time and money and, and resources. So I think you really need to have a question to ask and then work out whether monitoring is what's going to answer that question for you. Um, and if it is, then what sort of monitoring protocol is going to be best to use it? So like I said, presence, absence, really simple. Um, can be cameras. Um, how, how long, how is the, what's the duration of monitoring going to be? That's going to drive, you know, your resources in times of cost, money, and probably your monitoring protocol as well. But to just monitor for the sake of monitoring is really just, just sitting back and watching a species decline when you could potentially decline when you could. Oh, looks like maybe I should jump in. I think we might. Please, Ross. Yep. <laughs> um, yeah, I completely agree that whoever's doing the monitoring needs to. Could have been using that data to inform the intervention thought out that initial question. Oh, thanks, Dylan. Sorry, we, we you froze there for a moment. So we've just we've um, jumped to Ross to pick up the conversation. <laughs> so, yeah, whoever's doing the monitoring needs to. Um, have that question why they they doing that that monitoring and I think another element of it is um, the scale of the monitoring or the scale of the the study because it could just be someone that's got a property somewhere with you know a bit of habitat in the backyard like me and they've got some nest boxes up or whatever and they just want to know what's happening at that that small scale or it could be you know it could be driven by some government organisation where it's a landscape scale question and I think there there is a need for that sort of question in in parts of Victoria with squirrel gliders and therefore as as the others have pointed out um, it may just be a matter of getting presence absence data and we're certainly doing studies where we're, we're using combination of techniques so it's in some areas the question relates to a landscape scale study so we are just getting uh, presence absence data whereas 
at other sites, like at a site in Brisbane that we've been trapping at for 18 years. Um, you know, we've got like a 30 or 40 hectare grid that we, we trap at four times a year to, to um, see how that, that population is trending. And the context for that particular study is that there, there was a long-term proposal for a development, which has just happened in the last couple of years. So now the, the developer, it's a long story, but the developers actually had to put up some money to, to see whether you know, that development actually is having an impact on that, that local population. Thanks. Thanks, Ross. Well, look, while, while we've got you, um, I might um, jump to, to Meg's question, if that's okay. Um, I've seen any coming from the, from the, uh, from the team. So, um, so this one's more about adequacy of um, techniques. So just, um, you know, where, you know, how adequate do you think some of the existing survey techniques are? So assuming you've got your purpose, you know what you're doing, you know why you're doing it. You know, what do you think is the adequacy of those techniques and, and where do you think there are gaps? Where are the gaps? Um, okay, there's a couple, a couple of answers to that. One, one is, as Rod pointed out, there's, and, um, and Dylan, there's a, there's a number of different techniques that you can use and the, the, the more traditional ones have been trapping and spotlighting. And we've certainly done some analyses to compare those and, and they're, on, they're basically on a par what we don't know is whether thermal cameras are going to be a, a much better way to go if you were going to go out at night doing sort of spotlight transects or whatever. The other one is too with cameras. I mean, we've used cameras a lot, but not in the context of sort of doing these sort of um, surveys for squirrel gliders. We've had cameras at nest boxes and we're doing a lot of camera work with um, potteroos and paddy melons, but we haven't, haven't looked at it with um, with squirrels. So the question then might be whether cameras, baited cameras might be a, a more efficient way to, to get presence absence data rather than say, you know, trapping or, or spotlighting or whatever. So, so that, that's, you know, all of those techniques can work and, and have been proven to, to work quite well. Um, but as I said before, one of the key questions is the scale of your, your question or your monitoring. So, um, you know that can that can have an influence as to which which of these techniques might be the most efficient. Yep. Yep. Um, thanks, Ross. Again, to um, Rod, Dylan, Jerry, um, do you have any comments on on that question about adequacy of existing techniques? Yep. Sure, I can jump in here. Thanks, Jerry. Just uh, and thanks a lot for having me on and. Um, Good to see everyone on board here. I just made some scratching some notes here about uh, monitoring and, and I think a couple of critical points to remember is um, it is worthwhile getting statistical advice bef before you launch into any any sort of monitoring or survey or research project trying to work out um, what's what's in your patch. And uh, as others have already stated, um, it's worthwhile working uh, spending a bit of time on on developing what the key objectives are for that particular project. So really articulating clearly what it is you want to get out of that project and using a monitoring protocol that's going to address those objectives and uh, don't be um, distracted or persuaded to go outside of that protocol just because you, you happen to be there and you want to collect a bit more data because uh, I can say from experience 
there's no point in collecting a whole bunch of data if you're not going to analyze it. It's just a waste of time out in the field when uh, that's pretty resource hungry. Get, uh, get your reporting peer reviewed so it gets out and about and so other people can see what, what you've done and that's always useful in terms of uh, common understanding and not re reinventing the wheel. And uh, finally, submit your all data into your statewide uh, biodiversity atlases, which is uh, something that we need to continue to do because all our modeling is based on the, that, that, those respective databases. And not, not forgetting the, um, and touching on the pros and cons of uh, remote cameras versus trapping and handling and all that sort of thing. There are the animal ethics uh, approvals and requirements that are uh, nowadays almost prohibitive. So um, people need to be aware of, of that. Okay. Seeing a lot of nodding around the, around the room, Jerry. So thanks for, thanks for that. Um, I hope they're not nodding off to sleep. <laughs> I, I, it doesn't appear so. There's, um, um, we've just got a couple of questions in the, in the chat. I might pick up just a, a couple of those. So one, which I think goes a little bit to probably the general point you're making, Jerry, um, which is about, you know, what control is there of the quality of surveys that are done? Um, so in the, the question here is easy for a developer, but I think it's a more general, useful question. Um, who would like to have a bit of a chat about that? Yeah, I might, I might have a bit of a stab at that. Having, Thanks, having gone out of a, an academic research, you know, space where it's all about doing everything to the highest possible standard to now working at a consulting company where you've got conflicting, uh, you know, um, demands on budgets and costs and so on and so on. At the end of the day, the challenge, well, it's always good to get um, reports peer reviewed, like uh, Jerry said. So even if it's a proposal for a development, um, you know, that can be peer reviewed. And if it comes out that you've done a pretty, half-hearted attempt at surveying for something and didn't find it, then that will come to light. There's also state and national standards for, for surveys for some species, not for gliders, but for example, for growling grass frog, you know, you need to do at least X number of nights under these weather conditions. So, you know, maybe there's, maybe there's space to uh, develop some national survey standards for, for squirrel gliders, perhaps. That, that could be a, a neat something coming out of this thanks thanks rod that 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 makes sense um um dylan did you want to make a comment on that otherwise i'm going to come to you with a with a question so yeah okay real quickly so i was just going to touch base on yeah the accuracy of records that are available in places like the atlas of living australia and bba and things like that how it can potentially be improved is i think recently we're seeing these these platforms become available in citizen science like Eye naturalist and nature mapper, which experts can get involved in as, as moderators, and you get a bit of a, a secondary um, species ID confirmation before it becomes a published record. Um, and to have that visible chain of, you know, especially if you can see that the moderator is an expert in the field or has that credibility, to have that attached to the record, I think, goes a long way to being used by decision makers in the, at a regulatory level and then passed on to development applications as conditions and such, and, and just makes it a lot more robust. So like, a, in essence, a sort of chain of evidence, uh, you know, so... You it is, that's exactly that. what it is. Um, and most of the monitoring we're doing up around Albury-Wodonga is with cameras, 
Um, and it's quite easy on, on the Aubrey side because of the lack of um, sugar gliders or crest gliders. Um, that Murray River seems to be a bit of a geographic barrier. But on the Wodonga side, we do have the overlap. And to use the motion sensing cameras and get a black and white image of a glider without scale um, and without potentially the whole animal in the image can be quite difficult to differentiate between the two. Um, and you can't obviously use that as a squirrel glider record if it's not 100%. So to be able to get multiple people input into a record like that and see the commentary and, and how we've come to a decision, I think makes it a lot more robust. Terrific. Um, we won't return to that theme in a moment, but um, uh, just to, to keep us moving uh, moving along. Um, so, Dylan, this is this is coming coming to you, and and it, it sort of actually cycles a little bit back to the protocols idea, but it's just asking what um, the, what techniques and protocols are going to lend themselves to sort of long term monitoring um, yeah. for squirrel gliders? Um, so in my, my experience at the moment is with motion sensing cameras and it's at a, quite a large landscape scale. So talking about the Thaguna Wollinga area just east of Albury, which is the growth corridor for Albury. Um, so if you can think of the Murray River in the south, the Hume Freeway uh, on the west, Lake Hume on the east, all the way up to Edamoga, so really large area. Um, we've got over 60 sites. Um, we try and monitor twice a year um, for 10 nights each. So really, if you consider that 60 sites, 10 nights each, a lot of survey nights, you're going to do that spotlighting or trapping. The cost, time associated with that kind of thing, resources, just makes it unfeasible. So these cameras are really great for a long-term um, monitoring program with a lot of sites. Um, as I said, you can have, we've got, been lucky enough to get a, a number of cameras. We've got 60 cameras funded now through uh, the Ross Trust and the Wet Mill Environment Trust. So thanks to them. We've got them out in the landscape at the same time to really get all this data in you know, across a month or six or eight weeks across, we're talking both sides of the border, over a hundred sites. Um, and we're using this year, year in, year out to detect presence absence at those sites and identify any population growth or, or decline and, and inform management interventions for those people making decisions in those areas. So my experience with the cameras is that they're a very viable long-term monitoring, um, especially for presence absence. Um, and provide opportunity to take that further too if you identify a trend that needs further research and maybe delve into a particular site or a particular population and you can substitute with other methods as well. But I think for efficiency, like Ross said, the cameras are great. Okay, thanks. Uh, Ross, any comments from you about that? Either the cameras or, again, long-term, just long-term monitoring techniques, protocols? Uh, well, again, it, it comes down to the question is, and, and uh, I mean, what Dylan's doing sounds really good. That's that's the approach I'd use. I think I'd be using cameras if I was doing a, um, you know, a, a landscape scale study like that. And, and certainly, you know, we have, and so is Rod's group where we've been monitoring, um, you know, uh, road crossing structures where we've had cameras in place for like three years at a time. So, you know, you're just not going to, going to get any records if you're out there spotlighting yeah. Uh, those sites anyway but yeah certainly that 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 would be useful um the uh i mean i had a thought about the um the records that um yeah it, i agree that there it would be good if there was confirmation of um photo records that are going into atlases and the, the only context there for me is that having uh looked at the new south wales atlas for a couple of different species up my way in northeast new south wales there's been a couple of records of of um, species other than squirrel gliders where they're just, you know, they're way out of um, location and the records have been accepted. One, one is basically a long nosed potteroo about a kilometre from where I'm sitting now, which I know is just not 
you know, it's not feasible, but it's in there as a valid record. So the new, you know, certainly the New South Wales Atlas has a few issues in terms of data quality. Um, and yeah, and, the, and that's for things that are actually quite, you know, readily identified. So yes. if there's some system in place to, to verify photo records, that would be useful. Um, that nicely picks up on, on a question that's come in on the chat, but also um, uh, that I was going to ask Jerry, which is about that sort of difficulty in, in identification and, you know, distinguishing um, you know, squirrels from sugar gliders and, and so on. Um, that as you know, cameras are used more, um, you know, this growing citizen science, um, you know, the growing use of all of these, um, you know, how can we ensure that, you know, we get improved accuracy in, in the use of cameras, in the use of citizen science, you know, for identification to, to make sure that we do get accurate records. Jerry, you, would you be happy to have a Crack at that. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll have a crack. Thank you very much for that. Um, I think just what I'm thinking about is, as other people are talking that uh, it doesn't matter what survey protocol you you use, they, they all have hairs on it, excuse the pun. And uh, it requires a certain amount of expertise and um, there are um, reasons for doing one particular technique over over another depending on that objective um, that you've got so if, it, if it's just a presence absence thing like if I just want to see if squirrel gliders are uh, out and about I'll grab a spotlight and uh, just wander out and shine a light around and just casually uh, go yep they seen one put it into uh, VBA go when it's working and that'll go directly into the database and get verified by uh, I can see, I reckon Peter Menkhorst is uh, on the line there. It'll get verified by people like Peter and uh, it'll go into the into the Atlas that way. Um, there's, so squirrel glider and sugar glider are classic cases of two species that you can misidentify. And I'm, I'm sure others can think of um, barking owls and boobook owls, the, the same sort of thing and uh, calling individuals that you can uh, misidentify that get submitted into databases. And then uh, in perpetuity, you see these outlier records that people wonder about for forever and a day. So um, I, I think Bert's continuing to ask the question, how do you, how do you make certain uh, that what you put into a database is, is indeed the right species and and just to uh, cut to the chase that I, I use three different things when when having a look at a particular glider that might be 30 meters up a tree obscured by canopy and leaves and uh, I have to lie on my back for 20 minutes with a pair of good pair of binoculars and look up at that animal and if I can see the entire belly fur and see that that belly fur is white or creamy white or off-white, then I can be 100% certain that I'm looking at a squirrel glider. The other two variables that I use is the size. So squirrel glider being larger than the sugar glider. Now that's no good if you're looking at a sub-adult squirrel glider, but um, once you get your eye in and you have got large animals, 
you know that you're looking at a screw glider. And the third thing that it has not been that reliable in, in recent times, and other people have mentioned it, is the length of the fur at the base of the tail. With screw, glider, screw gliders having far fatter, furrier tails. However, having said that, uh, in more recent times, a bunch of us have got a whole lot of photos with gliders that have got really fluffy tails and they've been outside of screw glider ranges and subsequently we've shown that they are actually sugar gliders or crefts glider, whatever you want to call them. And I've actually got photos of sugar gliders that I've uh, trapped with Andrew Claridge up north and uh, in the hand known that it's a sugar glider, but the tail has been very, very fluffy. So uh, it's very easy to misidentify. And probably if you don't have experience or if you don't have the animal in the hand, uh, it's very difficult to, to say 100% that you're looking at a squirrel glider. So, mate, uh, thanks, um, Jerry. So sort of a follow-up question perhaps to, to other team members. From what I think I've heard is you've talked a lot about um, you know being there holding gliders you know, uh, you know physically being present given the growth of you know cameras um, in in monitoring and surveying um, how do we how do we address that identification problem there so um, on, on that know, point I'll, Stuart um, I'd flick that to Dylan. Like Dylan's, Dylan's actually, um, you know, doing doing a long term survey. It sounds like so. It's and he's got one area where there are sugars. So how are you actually um, dealing with that particular issue, Dylan? Yeah, it's it's the massive limiting factor of um, the cameras. And like Jerry was saying, with the spotlight under the glider, you can see their belly fur and things like that. What we're doing with the cameras is we're putting the cameras on an auxiliary branch, looking at the trunk of the tree. Um, and they're attracting the squirrel gliders in with a scent lure, which is water mixed with honey and sugar sprayed on the tree. So what you're getting is a photo, you know, best case of the glider's back, um, but you don't get the underside. And you don't, if you don't have the full tail in there or the full head, then it presents with issues. So, yeah, we're probably going to have to start looking at some sort of solution to help us um, identify between sugars and squirrels in that situation. We've only just started our first monitoring round in Victoria, so it's a really new problem for us. Um, and at the moment, there's probably a lot of records that aren't going into databases because we can't be certain of the exact species. So it's interesting, I just saw pop up in the chat, somebody mentioned the selfie trap project, which is out of University of Wollongong. And I've definitely um, had chats with those guys and they've got a bit of an engineered solution where they put their camera in a bit of PVC pipe and have a bait in the pipe. And then with a, um, a close-up lens, get a really good um, image where they can distinguish between individuals, not just species as well. Um, but for us, you know, with the amount of sites we've got, um, we're probably looking at something like trying to in install a scale bar on the tree to use the size more than anything. But we're still going to have the issue Jerry mentioned with sub-adults. But, yeah, there's going to be improvements along the way. Well, well my question would be that if, um, you know, if you looked at your data and saw how many sites where you had question marks about whether it was a sugar or a squirrel, whether it's feasible to, to go back to those sites and um, put, put traps in okay. or a nest box, you know, to Absolutely. try and encounter a live animal. Boy, yeah. And that is. And again, it comes down, that's the massive advantage of trapping is having an animal in the hand for an ID yeah. purpose. It comes down to what the outcome of your program is. So we're doing presence absence 
if we've got a question mark on one site, but we've got a definite squirrel glider at a site close by, then we can assume that the gliders are overlapping in that area anyway from a, informing us whether they're present or absent. So, but I agree, if there was real question marks over a particular area and it was going to be developed, we'd have to do something more targeted for that site. Um, so I've got a, a question here from uh, Jordan for the BMPA, which you, you might see there, which is just asking, uh, are hair tubes a good way of confirming the, the difference in gliders and no. maybe associated with? But it depends. It depends again on the question. Because um, I've used hair tubes quite a bit uh, and in the area that I worked, they were there were only you know it's literally 99% of the gliders I caught were squirrel gliders. And the person who did my hair analysis also knew that I was working on squirrel gliders, so it's not surprising that um, most of the hairs came back as squirrel gliders. So I think, but but for the questions that I was asking, that was okay. I wasn't trying to, you know, separate sugars from squirrels. This guy who did the hair ID said that. Um, you know, the squirrel glider hairs were longer than sugar glider hairs, but I wouldn't be calling that a reliable, uh, you know, foolproof method at all. I see Gary shaking. We've actually tested out some of these people that hmm. can distinguish them based on um, having animals in the hand and, and they don't get them no, right. correct. So it's, yeah, not, yeah. it's not a reliable technique to distinguish them. Okay. Unless you're doing DNA. Yep, uh, that sounds like a sounds like a, a resounding probably not uh, in terms of the in terms of that question. Um, I might just go to a, an earlier question. You know, a lot of the I think uh, you know, a lot of the points you've all made, which are you know about um, you know the the validity of the data that comes out and being sure about that and so on. And so somebody asked earlier, but thinking about from a citizen science point of view. You know, is there a way of um, doing surveys that are going to be useful in terms of informing, you know, decision making sort of further up the chain is the term that's, that's used, but that would be respected and, and accepted as valid? Then who would like to have a swing at that? Dylan? Yeah, I can. Um, I've just got a, a good example actually sort of ties right in with that. Um, or two examples. So our, our program is funded by both Aubrey City Council and Wodonga Council in part. So they've both got an interest in, in detecting gliders in their growth areas uh, and the potential to detect other threatened species as well to inform their um, development um, approvals. Um, and so what I've had two instances where um, rec our records have been directly used to move a development's access track around a tree that we detected gliders in. So having got to the site, seen the tree mark for removal, sent the data through to the council and, and they made that intervention on the spot. Um, and secondly, they've both also contributed funding towards a nature mapper, which is a citizen science platform, citizen to iNaturalist, um, where you can set up, you know, projects, but generally people can just sign up as a user, submit their records, they're validated. And we've got members of council who are users in the Nature Mapper platform and are directly using those records as they come in to inform their um, development application. So there's no lag time. They can sign up as a user and get information to help them do their jobs. And it's not just with squirrel guys, it's with vegetative weeds and things like that as well, but they can set up notifications for a particular species when it comes in, they're notified um, and they can start to use that. So as a citizen scientist, sign up to these platforms um, and start uploading your sightings and your records because they are being used. 
And and the, the that question of validity of those that doesn't arise, Dylan? Well, as a, we've got um, an example, a person in um, the Wodonga area that does regular spotlight walks along the Kiwa River, um, submits all sorts of great photos um, of, of squirrel gliders and sugar gliders, um, has a high-res camera. Um, I'm a moderator, as are others in, in the field, um, and we can go in and say, yep, it's a squirrel, it's a sugar. We can say, not sure, um, so it won't go in as either. Um, and then, yeah, as I said, they're being used pretty regularly. So that validity of that secondary confirmation by you know experts or people who know the species is really important yeah fantastic i think we uh, want to encourage people Stuart, to to make these observations yep and as long as people are aware that there is a bit of an id issue and to try and provide some additional data that that someone else could um could look at that can then you know give some uh, idea about the you know the likelihood of whether it really is a squirrel glider or not or you know it may lead to someone following up later on yeah yeah that, that makes good sense i think i heard um ross say this morning in the state of play that you looked at the atlas for victoria and there was only something like 17 records since 2010 was it and i found that quite staggering so um yeah. like i think I, we submitted somewhere around the 20 sightings just this year into nature mapper which feeds into laa but then there's that lag time of them actually getting in there for use so that's yeah, what it showed definitely. this morning, Dylan. Seventeen since twenty ten. Yeah, maybe that's... maybe yours are not um, considered reliable, Dylan. Yeah, maybe that's what. Joking, joking. That's some tough love right there. Yeah. So, um, uh, another um, uh, another quick um, uh, question, which came in from Lou, or which was just um, asking about. Um, you know, bait for using around motion cameras. And um, Lou's asking about, is there a recommended bait and length of time to leave cameras out? Uh, well, I can just speak to what we're doing, but as I said, it's just uh, honey and sugar mixed in with water, which we just spray on the patch the camera's focused at. And now cameras are left out for a minimum of 10 nights at each site. But that's just how, what's been delved up by, you know, Rodney's work in back in 2010 informed this monitoring program and it's been peer reviewed by Damien Michael at CSU, so really good experts in the field. Um, and that's the monitoring program that we're implementing to, I think, good effect, but can't, can't say what everyone else is doing. I, I generally use a, a two week window for cameras um, and we use a peanut butter, oats and honey mix in a plastic, little plastic container. Um, which also doubles up as the scale bar. So, the, you know, we've got that as a size measurer thing. Um, and also honeyed water sprayed on the trunk. Anything longer than two weeks, the bait is often mouldy and slimy if it's winter or completely dried out if it's the middle of summer. So that's probably the limit on the bait. Yep. Um, Ross or Jerry, any, any comments on that question? Oh, I'd agree with what Rod said. That's what we tend to use for, for traps. Yep. Okay. Um, all right. Well, we, we, we are rapidly closing in on the top of the hour um, and um, uh, just about, uh, so we're just about to, to head out. So I've got to the final, uh, final question um, for everybody. Um, so whoever would like to, to pick it up and that's, just with your understanding, where do you think our sort of major gaps are 
you know, in, in our understanding of species distribution and habitat use that, that we could, you know, put some of these tools, you know, to use in, you know, where, where are our big gaps? I might jump in first. First, though, Stuart, if you don't mind, I'll answer a question from Helen. Um, so, something about if ranges overlap, how often are hollows or nest boxes shared? So if that's a question, do squirrel gliders and sugar gliders share the same box at the same time? I think that's uh, almost 100% no, they won't share it at the same time. But perhaps over time, if one moves out, another one might move in would be the answer to that, that question. And I think in the way into the future is, for me, it's about what's, you know, Ross has done some long-term monitoring at his sites up in Queensland in, around Brisbane, but there's a very little long-term monitoring that has taken place in Victoria. Um, I don't know whether Dylan's planning to do his stuff at Wodonga for a long-term, long time, but we don't really know what the, the trajectory of glider populations in the southeast of Australia. And I think that's a major issue. There's some yeah. good baseline data that exists from surveys that various people have done for two, three, maybe four years, but not much longer than that. Yeah. I think that's a big gap. Okay, Ruby. Uh, Ross? Uh, yeah, I, I think we need to um, set up some long-term monitoring sites. Um, not, be, not being a Victorian, I think there there are questions about where, you know where the where squirrel gliders occur in the sort of western part of the range, where, whether you know we've lost any populations out there. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's always additional information we could do with in terms of habitat use, understanding that. Yeah. Uh, Jerry. I think it's fascinating now that we've got the, the new genetics on the, the new sugar glider and with some of the sort of morphological uh, anomalies that we're seeing across the board that uh, pretty well every, everywhere we've seen a sugar glider slash screw glider, if we can uh, get the animal in the hand, do some measurements on it, do some weights and collect some DNA, that would... Uh, um, fill in a lot of our knowledge gaps for sure. Yep. And in terms of Victoria for squirrel glider, there's the the Western populations around um, the Grampians, Dadswells Bridge, and there's the more Eastern populations that are around um, the Goulburn River, the Ovens River, Warby Range, and up here more in the Northeast around Chilton, Mount Pilot, Barranduda. And then there's one record in the middle between those those two at Stuart Mill. So it would be fascinating for us to go back to Stuart Mill or thereabouts. I'm sure Peter will be laughing as well uh, to work out um, what's happening in that particular area and whether whether there are indeed squirrel gliders in that in in and around that location. Okay, thanks, Jerry and Dylan. Yeah, I think there's definitely more to be done in the, the urban and peri-urban interface. But like I heard um, even Rod say this morning in the state of play discussion, it's not uncommon to walk into a, an area where you'd think there was no chance of being squirrel gliders, yet they're there. They move throughout the landscape readily. They utilise different hollows and, and, you know, sites over the year. They won't even necessarily be in a hollow if there's none available. They'll be under loose bark or in a fissure of a tree. So they are quite adaptable 
And we're detecting a lot of them within already developed urban areas in, in roadside patches and parks and gardens and things like that. Um, so to be able to also use that information along with the information we're getting from the, the urban fringe areas that are going to be developed, then how can we inform that development to create ongoing habitat for these things to persist you know, in these urban areas as well? Um, so I think a lot of work to be done there. Yeah. Okay, terrific. Um, we are at we are at our um, two o'clock. There's still a couple of um, a couple of questions there. We we actually obviously the session's being recorded. The questions will be recorded uh, as well as part of that. And um, you know hopefully the, the team might be able to get those out for 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 an answer. Um, some of them are just comments and. People are also answering questions as they go. So thank you, everybody. Um, so I think um, that sort of brings us to, to the end of this session. Um, so I'd like to like to thank um, the four of you for, for your contributions and openness and sharing of an incredible depth of knowledge and wisdom. Um, a reminder to everybody that um, in the in the chat. Uh, the start. The um, uh, there's a survey that's been posted from uh, BioLinks that has a couple of questions that they'd like everybody to who, who would like to as many as possible to to answer. Um, so please either you know, have go off to that now or take a copy of that and you know, fill it in um, at your leisure, uh, and uh, that'd be you know, much appreciated. And thank you very much. So thanks, Ross Rod. Dylan, Jerry, thank you. Everybody else who's on the line, um, thanks for participating. The Greater and Squirrel Gladys Symposium was proudly presented by BioLinks Alliance in conjunction with Strathbergy Rangers Conservation Management Network and Wombat Forest Care and made possible through generous sponsorship from the Ross Trust, Pool of Dreams, Clara Lysa's Gift and the Great Eastern Rangers.